68, as I mentioned to you, we left off at verse 14. And um, so we're going to pick it up at verse 15. So, Father, we do ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word. I'm thankful that we can be here once again studying your word. And I pray that our hearts would be teachable. And, Lord, that um, you would just take your word and touch our hearts and help us to make application to see your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness, Lord. And, Father, that you do care for us. And I do pray that uh, we would be encouraged by being here. And, uh, and Lord, uh, sometimes in the midweek, it's, it's hard. We've been working hard all week, and, uh, and we can be tired in the evening time. So help us to keep our ears and, and eyes open, and, and more than just physically, but, Lord, spiritually. And our hearts just desiring to hear from you right now as we feed upon the Word of God. And, Lord, I do pray that I, I thank you for, again, last week as we heard the testimonies of those who have gone out in the mission field. But, Lord, all of us have opportunity to minister. And, Lord, as we do minister, um, may we minister out of love and truth. And, Lord, desiring to be light. I pray that, Lord, tonight would help us to do that. And, Father, to grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need. We don't want this lesson to just be academic. We want this lesson to be personal and real and cause us to, to see you more clearly. So we thank you again that we get to open the Word of God. Lord, I want to pray before we get started in our study as, um, as we've been praying for Jamie Leachman as coming back from the Philippines because of health problems and on her way. I pray that she get in safely. Um, tonight, um, uh, later on, and I pray that you would bring healing to her and um, answers to her and to the family, and Lord, I pray that um, you would encourage her, and Lord, bless her, and Father, we thank you that you are the God of mercies, and that you're the God God of comfort, that comforts us in all of our troubles, And, Lord, I thank you that you desire, as you look into our hearts tonight again, to bring that to all of us, whatever it is that we need. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 68 is, you remember, a psalm of David. That David, uh, this is a song of ascent, and that's what we began to look at last week in the first 14 verses. And David would write this song, uh, this psalm, uh, during uh, the time of Second Samuel chapter 6, when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim, about 20 miles from the city of David, he's going to bring it up to Mount Zion, uh, to the city of David, to Jerusalem, and begin to establish that central place of worship. And it, it was uh, an important event in the life of David because he was such a worshiper, and, and he was desiring to establish that central place of worship as he built the city of David. It would be expanded. That would include Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And, of course, David was wanting to bring the Ark of the Covenant that had been ignored under Saul's reign to that place, and he pitched a tent when he brought it to Jerusalem. And there was two tabernacle meetings at that time. There was one in Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, and then the original uh, tabernacle meeting that was in uh, Gibeah, that they did the sacrifices there. 
So David, he was a man that wanted to establish a central place of worship. He was one, of course, that desired to build a temple for God. But we know that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, after he brings the Ark of the Covenant, and he looks, and he's in a palace, and there's the Ark of the Covenant in a tent, that the Lord said, no, you're not going to build the temple, but your son Solomon. And that's what would take place after the death of David. But David, when he did bring that Ark from Kirjath, Jerim up to Jerusalem, a song of ascent, and and it's speaking. David writes this song here, and of course, it was a great processional, a, a celebration, a, a dancing and praising God um, as they went up to Jerusalem. It also this song of ascent speaks of as verse one. Uh, let me read it to you again. Let God arise and let His enemies be scattered. Let those also who, who hate Him flee before Him that this is, is a quote from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. And in the wilderness wandering, when they would break camp, of course, that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud that was over the tabernacle, when it moved, the children of Israel would have to break down camp, and the priests and the Levites break down the um, tabernacle there that was in the center of the camp. And the Levites would back up, and, of course, they would bear the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And as they would uh, move, it was Moses that would stand up and sing this song, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. So this is taken from that as the Ark of the Covenant was taken up and the children of Israel were on the move. But also we're going to see, not only does it, it speak of uh, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, and, and then historically when he wrote this of Moses taking up the Ark of the Covenant when they moved, but it also speaks of Jesus, as we will see in verse 18, who ascended up into heaven, and we're going to see that in just a few moments. But let's pick up our text at verse 15. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So, Here we see that what David is doing is he's using poetic terms to speak of the jealousy of the mountains of Bashan, the the tall mountains that you find in the northern region, very northern part of Israel, Mount Hermon and that mountain range, tall mountains, uh, more majestic. You see, God chose Mount Zion to himself. And when you go to Jerusalem and, and Jerusalem is in the midst of hills, little slopes, uh, uh, hills, Mount of Olives to the east, uh, Mount Zion to the south, uh, Mount Moriah where the temple would be built. So you have Mount Scopus, all these small mountains that are there. And God chose Mount Zion to himself. He didn't choose the, the huge mountains like Mount Hermon. Uh, in the northern part of the country. Mount Hermon is a tall mountain. You can see it for miles. It gets snow on the mountain. Matter of fact, it's the northernmost point of Israel, and they get snow up there. They actually got a ski area up there. And God didn't choose the majestic mountains of Bashan or Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is probably where the Mount of Transfiguration took place that you read about in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew chapter 17, I believe, where you remember on top of the mountain that Jesus and Moses and Elijah that appeared with him were transfigured. He was shining like the sun, and 
there Peter, James, and John were asleep, and they, they woke up and caught a glimpse, at least Peter did, and he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And he would hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son, uh, hear him. So God here would choose the small things, the small hills, and, and that's what David is speaking about. And, and that encourages me because we know that God likes to choose small things. He, he likes to choose the foolish and weak things, doesn't he? And we know that's what God's word declares. Matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter 4, when the house of Judah, the, some of the remnant of the house of Judah that was taken off into captivity in Babylon, uh, after the 70 years of captivity, when Cyrus made a decree in 536 B.C. that they could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And it was the rubble that would return with them, and they cleared off the rubble. And you got to remember that when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the first temple, the first temple was magnificent, uh, made of costly, huge stones, as we read in Second Kings chapter 6. And, and the rubble was everywhere. And it would be very difficult for them to come back. And, and here were the burnt stones and stones laying in piles. And they would clear off where the altar was. And they first built the altar, as we read God's word. And then they would begin to lay the foundation of the temple but you know the story that the work stopped for a number of years. Matter of fact, it stopped for about 12 years. And Zerubbabel was very discouraged, I'm sure. And here's the prophet Zechariah. He has a series of visions in one night, eight of them. And in one of those visions, he has a message to give to Zechariah. And that is Zechariah, you know, that the hands that began to build the temple and laid the foundation of the temple are going to be the hands that finish it. And it's by grace. And, and so you go tell Zerubbabel that the work that I've started through you, Zerubbabel, and the work of building the temple is going to be completed. And so Zerubbabel needed to know that, but know this as well, Zerubbabel, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the Lord would go on to say to Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things. And that's such an important message for you and for me. Don't despise the day of small things. And the work that the Lord has begun in this, he's going to bring it to completion. And I love what Paul writes in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6, that being confident of this very thing, in other words, when he says being confident of this very thing, he's saying this is for sure, no doubt about it, that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. And the reason that it means a lot to me is because that, Lord, I can just rest in you and just yield to you and know that the work that you've begun in me, that you're going to bring it to completion. And I also know that it's not by might, not by power, it's not by my own abilities and my own togetherness and my, my own you know, intellect and all of this, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So I can allow him to just, you know, as I yield to him and as I just uh, desire to follow him, that he's going to finish that work in me. Don't despise the day of small things. And you might be here and you might be thinking, well, I'm kind of in small things. I'm in small days. Don't despise those days because the Lord is doing a work in you and he's preparing the work that he has for you. And we also know that Paul, that when you go to the New Testament, as Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers, and of course the Corinthians 
we're all into the Greek culture and, you know, intellect and, and philosophy and all that was very, very important to them and, and status and prestige. And, and it is Paul that would say to them that, that God chooses the foolish things of the world to, you know, put down the wise and the weak things of the world to confound, you know, the strong, put down the strong and the things that are not the things that are that no man can glory in his presence. God chooses the foolish things and the weak things of the world and the things that are not so he can bring them to a place where people can look at you and me. And again, that's a great encouragement to me because I fit into that category as being foolish and weak. And that's good news for me because God chooses to use people like me, like you, to do a wonderful work. And you see, he gets the glory. People don't look at me and say, oh, he's so wonderful. He's so great. He's so intelligent. He's so together. It's like, man, God's using him. (laughs) You know, God's got to get the glory. And I love that because he will not share his glory with any man or any woman. And he's the one that deserves all the glory as he works through us. So God chose Mount Zion, that place where the temple would eventually be built. David's going to mention the temple here. Now, remember at this time that he's writing this, the temple has not been built at all. That would come many years later after the death of David. And then Solomon would take seven years to build the temple. But here he's beginning to want to establish that place of worship. God chose Mount Zion, not the the mighty mountains of Bashan. And then we go on to read in verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So in verse 18, that verse might be familiar to you as you have ascended on high. You had led captivity captive or led captivity free is might be the translation of that. And if it rings a bell with you, it's because probably uh, you're familiar with chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians that we just went over. And you recall that uh, as we went over that text just a little bit ago, as chapter 4 is talking about having unity in the body of Christ and the bond of peace, you know. And and in Ephesians, Paul quotes from here, um, from verse 18 of Psalm 68. And he would say, and I'll read it to you once again, that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Again, quoting from what we just read in Psalm 68. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And so as we read this, you know, and compare it to what, Paul is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 4 um, in that section that first he, he descended before he ascended. So the song of ascent, David bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant was a box that had the uh, Aaron's rod in it and the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna. And it had a lid on it that was called the mercy seat made of pure gold and the two cherubim. And it was the Lord that said to Moses that I will dwell between the cherubim there in the Holy of Holies. 
between the wings of the cherubim, that, that lid that was on top of the box, and I will, you know, meet with my people. And, of course, that was only the high priest that was allowed to go into that room, and he would go into the tangible presence of God, the cherubim representing the angelic, you know, creatures that guard the throne of God. And so David taking the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, Moses moving the Ark of the Covenant, but Jesus himself would ascend up in heaven as uh, he would be resurrected from the grave. But Paul tells us something very interesting. He says before he ascended, he first descended. What does that mean? Well, I had a very brief explanation, but to remind you again that we can tie it into Luke chapter 16. You remember that in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And uh, Lazarus was a poor beggar and ate scraps and the dogs licked his, his sores. And the rich man uh, apparently didn't have any care or concern for him. But they ended up both dying and they went down to that compartment in the center of the earth that is called Sheol in the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, Hades in the New Testament. And there was two compartments as Jesus explains that story. In one compartment, there was uh, the side of Abraham's bosom or paradise. And, and all those in the Old Testament that look forward to the cross, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, all those who, who before the cross uh, would go to Abraham's bosom. They would go to that place of paradise. You remember when the thief cried out to Jesus on the cross and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom? What did Jesus say to him? Before the sun is set, you'll be with me in paradise. So before the cross, because of the animal sacrifices, as you read the book of Hebrews, that there, wasn't, um, there was just a covering of sin. The animal sacrifices could not take away sin. That didn't happen until Jesus Christ came and died for our sins once and for all. So looking forward to the cross, they would go to that holding chamber, and then Jesus, when he breathed his last, he would, uh, if you would, escort the thief down to Abraham's bosom, and he would lead captivity free, captivity captive. They, they were in that holding place, and now, as the book of Hebrews says, that he would present his sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle, it would be accepted, and that chamber is empty now. So before he ascended it, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that's where he would leave captivity captive. Hey, this is what you've been waiting for. I come and died for your sins once and for all. So let's go. And they would all go up into the presence of the Father now because their sins are forgiven. We on this side of the cross, we look back to the cross. And now as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, to be absent from the body is what? to be present with the Lord. So we go directly into heaven. Now, in that story of Luke chapter 16, that we know that it was the rich man, that he was in that other compartment. There was a canyon, a big chasm between Abraham's bosom, paradise, that compartment which is now empty, and then there's the, the place of the unrighteous dead. And it was the rich man that looked over and saw Abraham and Lazarus, and he said, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus over here and have him dip his finger in some water to touch my tongue. I am so dry. And what was the answer of Abraham? He said, no, there's a big canyon, chasm between us. Uh, you can't cross back and forth. And so it was 
the rich man that would say, well, can you send Lazarus back? So I got five brothers to warn them. And it was Abraham that said, no, that's not going to happen. They have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophet, they're not going to believe Lazarus, even if he comes back from the dead. And so that compartment, Sheol or Hades, is still those that are there of the unrighteous dead. And it's a very sobering, you know, story that Jesus told. Because there is a rich man, he, he's thirsty, and he's desiring for just a little touch of water. And you see, that's why as we think about that, I pr- pray that all of us, and me included, that we would just have that heart for the loss. I can't imagine going through all eternity being thirsty. Isn't that, you know, sobering to think about that? Well, that compartment, they will be resurrected after the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. They will stand before the great white throne judgment where they will be sentenced to outer darkness, um, to the lake of fire. And, and Satan is going to be cast in the lake of fire as well. So we see here that David, he, he says that, that you have ascended on high. You've led captivity captive. We've been freed, haven't we? We've been free from sin and from death. You've received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. And so verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. And then there's that pause. And as we think about this, what we just talked about, we can be so thankful and grateful that Jesus came and died for our sins. He was put into a grave. He came forth from the grave, but then he would go forth and ascend into heaven. And we're going to be with him. And he blesses us daily with that, the blessings that are ours in Christ knowing that we're free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin as we just walk with him and surrender to him. He is our salvation. Stop. Think about that. We're the most blessed people because we have salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, verse 20. And to God the Lord belong, escapes from death. And we do escape eternal death because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But God, verse 21, will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. And so there will be judgment. God will judge wherever um, those who will reject him. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may crush them in blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. So again, we see that wherever they are, that uh, they cannot escape uh, those who have rebelled against the Lord. And then verse 24, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Interesting here in verse 24, that the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Again, the sanctuary hadn't been built here. So most scholars will tell you that David here, looking down through the time, the word, the Lord's going to come back. And remember this, when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, there's going to be a few things that are going to take place. Number one, that he will judge the nations. Second of all, he's going to restore the nation of Israel. And then he's going to sit upon the throne there in Mount Zion, rule from Jerusalem. And he's going to rule over all the nations, right? 
And we also know that, as Ezekiel tells us, that there's going to be a millennium temple sanctuary that will be at that time. It's going to be a huge, massive, uh, magnificent temple that will be built. And so here, the procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary, um, just as David would bring uh, the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, there was this what procession that would lead and singing and celebrating and, and praising God. And that's what's going to happen as the Lord comes back. But another thing to take note of, it was interesting that um, somebody was asking me and emailing me about uh, witnessing to uh, some people that were in a cult and uh, how do I show them that Jesus is God. Now, this is one of the things, the procession of my God, my King. Speaking of Jesus, being called God here into the sanctuary, the singers went before the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels and Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There's little Benjamin, their leader, the princess of Judah and their company, the princess of Zebulon and the princess of Naphtali. Again, speaking about how Israel is going to have a prominent place in the millennium reign, the restoration of Israel. Uh, The Jews are going to come and recognize, as Paul uh, writes about in Romans chapter 11, as restoration and salvation comes to the nation and all of Israel will be saved at that time. In verse 28, your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Tell everyone submits himself with pieces of silver scattered the people's who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. So remember, again, when the Lord establishes his kingdom, as Psalm chapter 2, that messianic psalm tells us, that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. That is, he's going to rule over all of the nations. And we also know from Zechariah chapter 14 that every year at the Feast of Tabernacles that those from the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And those who rebel against that, uh, there's consequences that, is, um, that Zechariah chapter 14 tells us about. So it's going to be an enforced righteousness ruling with the rod of iron as he establishes uh, his kingdom. It's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be so glorious. Who wouldn't want to, you know, uh, submit themselves to the Lord? And Isaiah says at that time that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And I can't wait for that time. But there's going to be this celebration coming up to Jerusalem, this procession of of worship and music and and, uh, coming to see the Lord and the nations of the world and sing to God, verse 32, you kingdoms of the earth, oh, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides on the heaven of heavens which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God, his excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. I want to just kind of, I was thinking about this this afternoon in verse 35. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. That speaks of David just had that personal relationship with the Lord, didn't he? 
He loved the Lord. And even though he wanted to build that, that holy temple, he knew that my personal relationship with you, Lord, is more important than any holy place. And you see, sometimes uh, we see people, they get so excited about this holy place or, you know, this holy thing or whatever. Uh, the best thing that we can do is just grow in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's better than any holy relic or any holy place that we might want to go to and look at. The God of Israel, he's the one that gives strength and power to his people. So blessed be to God. So Psalm 68 and then Psalm 69, another Psalm of David. Now Psalm 69 is Again, a messianic psalm and one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. I think it's the second most quoted psalm. And it's a psalm of trouble and suffering. It is probably written, most scholars believe, during that time that we've talked a lot about that David was facing that rebellion from his son Absalom. So he's out in the wilderness. The whole nation has turned against him. His son has turned against him. But also, as we read this, we're going to see that it also speaks of Jesus, his sufferings that he endured for you and for me on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, as we go through this psalm, you're going to notice that we're going to go from pain to praise, and from sinking to singing. So Psalm 69, again, a psalm of David, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, or it might be translated to my soul. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. And of course, David out there in the wilderness, we've seen some of the Psalms that he's written during that time. And it was a very difficult time, not only because the whole nation came against him, not only because the throne was uh, being tried to be taken away from him, but it was his son that was doing it. And he was a broken-hearted father, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so he talks about this time that he feels like he's sinking in the mire. He, he feels like that he's drowning in deep waters uh, where the floods overflow me. It's got to be like Peter who literally began to sink in the Sea of Galilee. Remember when he stepped out of the boat and he's walking on the water? And all of a sudden, as he's walking on the water, he knows the waves crashing against him, the scriptures tell us. And he began to sink and, and he cried out, God save me, Lord help me. Three quick words, you know. And the Lord picked Peter up and plopped him back into the boat. And you see, whenever we get our eyes off the Lord, we can begin to just be overwhelmed very quickly. It feels like we're sinking in the, in the mire. It feels like that, uh, you know, we're drowning with the water all around us. And we know that here, that David, he writes, that I'm waiting for you. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. And I think that David is writing this, that my eyes fail, is because of the weeping that he's been you know, going through over the situation and, and his heart breaking because Absalom, my son, I think David knows that it's not going to turn out good for Absalom. My son, Absalom. You know, it's a very hard and difficult thing to wait on the Lord, isn't it? 
And one of the things that the Psalms have brought out already over and over again, how important it is that we do wait on the Lord, that we wait patiently for Him. But as we wait for Him, it can become difficult and hard, and, and there's weeping and there's sorrow. But the Lord desires for us to endure, and He knows that, that as we endure, that, that He can begin to minister to us. And, and as we endure to see the Lord working in a powerful way. We need to, in our spiritual lives, learn to wait on the Lord. And know this, waiting on the Lord doesn't mean that he's asleep. It doesn't mean that he's ignoring you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It means he's going to work in his perfect time, and he's going to grow you, and he's going to lift you up, and he's going to show his faithfulness to you. So David, speaking of this time that was very, very difficult, and, and then again, you know, it was Jesus enduring the incredible sufferings of the cross and, and like sinking in the mire, you know, drowning in the water. And, um, and, and here he says, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. My throat is dry, as he says. And those who hate me, verse 4, without a cause, are more than hairs on my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. So here that we see that David again expressing how they hated me without a cause. More than the hairs of my head are mighty who would destroy me. The whole nation, as we know that Second Samuel chapter 15 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The whole nation was coming against David. David only had a few mighty men that were with him and a few counselors and and others that would go out into the wilderness with him. He says, they're like the hairs on my head. They're they're the mighty men that are against me. And that's very difficult when we can feel alone, is when we feel like there are those who are coming against us. And without a cause, as David says, And that's what makes it especially hard, doesn't it? When you feel like, Lord, I am doing the best that I can. I'm walking with you, and and I'm desiring to grow closer to you, and, and I'm standing for your word, and I'm standing for righteousness, and I'm desiring to be a light to others, and all of a sudden, like, everybody at work is against you, or others in your family, or whatever the situation is. And that's a very hard and difficult thing. And David is saying, without a cause, they're coming against me. We know that the nation would come against Jesus, that they hated the Son of Man without a cause, and the crowds would cry out, crucify him. As Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, even though he never transgressed, he never sinned. Matter of fact, when you read the gospel accounts, Jesus on trial, it was Pilate that said three times, I find no fault in this man. He's innocent. Even Judas, the betrayer, would say, I've betrayed innocent blood. So, Here's Jesus, who was sinless, the one that without a cause, they would reject him, and they would come against him. And then in verse 5, O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. David was told by Nathan, you remember, that after he sinned with Bathsheba, that David says, you are forgiven, David, as David confessed his sin. 
But David, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And David here is expressing, as he has repeatedly in the Psalms that he has written, that, Lord, I don't want, because of my foolishness and my sin, to, to stumble others, as he writes here. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. And David was a man after God's own heart, and it, and it broke his heart to think that he caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And so David, speaking of his foolishness, of course, Jesus, he didn't sin. But David did as he writes this psalm. And he was one that he desired to be used of the Lord and be a light to others, to be a testimony of the goodness of God and the reality of God. And what about us? You see, I pray that we would have this kind of heart. I read this and I think, because of your sakes, I've borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger uh, or to my brothers. But in verse 6, let those who wait for you, you, O Lord God of hosts, be, you know, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me. Uh, I pray that, Lord, because none of us are perfect. But, Lord, I don't want to live my life to where I'm stumbling others. That where I'm causing others to doubt the reality and the goodness of God. I want to be that light. I want to show your love. I want to be a good witness for you, Lord. That people see the reality of Jesus in my life. And I pray that we would be sensitive to that. Does it bother us if we cause others to stumble? And it should bother us. It should concern us. And again, none of us are perfect. And in those times, you know, that, that we do fall short in our witness or our testimony of, of Christ in our lives, that we can go to that person and we can ask for forgiveness. We can ask God for forgiveness. But we want to be sensitive in those areas, not just say, well, I just, you know, so what if I cuss with the guys at work? Well, it's a big deal if, you know, we go afterwards and, you know, head to you know, the bars and have a good time afterwards. Or, you know, if I watch with the guys this, this movie, which is full of pornography or carnality, you, you see what I mean? That it would break our hearts to think that we would participate in things like that. And I don't want to be a bad witness. I don't want to, to cause others to be stumbled and look at me and say, well, why should I be a Christian? You're no different than anyone else. But to be able in love and in, in humility and sensitivity to be able to declare the goodness of the Lord and to have it lived out in our lives. And that's what David is talking about here. And as he goes on, that I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien, verse 8, to my mother's children. Uh, it's interesting that David, we know that God had called David to be king and there was a cost, wasn't there? His brothers disliked him. Remember in the story of, of David when he killed Goliath? In the beginning of that story, when he would come from Bethlehem up to the valley of Elah, and his brothers are there in the military. And David was too young to be in the military. And David comes up to bring food to his brothers. His dad sent him. And, and David comes, and his brothers are like, David, what are you doing here? They knew David would see Goliath who was stomping up and down the valley challenging, who's going to fight me? And David says, what are you going to do about this uncircumcised you know, guy that's you know, defiling the armies of the living God? David, why are you here? 
You're just here to cause trouble, to show off. So there was animosity that his brothers had against him. We see that in the scriptures. And they probably didn't like David because David the young is out there in the field when Jesse uh, had received that visit from Samuel, Samuel the prophet to anoint the new king of Israel. So his brothers disliked him. We know that Saul wanted him dead. His son at this time is rebelling against him. So they, he had a whole nation coming against him without a cause and hated him. But again, David wanted to please God and be used of him. It was Jesus that he was rejected by his brethren as they would cry out, crucify him. Even his own brothers, you remember that, that when Jesus was in Galilee region, that his brothers, he had at least four brothers or more accurately half-brothers. And he had sisters as well. Mary had children. And they came looking for Jesus, and they thought he was out of his mind. He is off his rocker, and we got to get him and, and bring him back to Nazareth, back home. And so his brothers didn't believe until after the resurrection of Jesus, and then they would believe. And two of those brothers, again, of Jesus, half-brothers, would write epistles in the New Testament. James would write the book of James, the book of practical Christianity, and then Jude, that little epistle right before the book of Revelation. They were brothers of Jesus. So Jesus also, he would go through it with his brothers. Interesting here, that an alien to my mother's children, in verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. Verse 9, again, may sound familiar to you, because we see that that's quoted in John's gospel, right? John's gospel, chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple. Remember, there was two cleansings of the temple in his first Year of ministry recorded in John chapter 2. That he comes into during the feast and he overturns the money changers' tables and drives out the oxen and sheep and he rebukes the religious leaders who had come against him. And he says, You've made my father's house a house of merchandise. Then the second cleansing would happen right before he went to the cross and there he did the same thing. And he would rebuke the religious leaders and he would say that you made my father's house a den of thieves. He made it a safe place for those who were ripping the people off. You made my father's house uh, a house of merchandise. As the religious leaders were ripping the people off with the selling of oxen and sheep and the exchange of money. We've gone over that again very carefully looking at that text. And as Jesus in that first cleansing in John chapter 2 it says that the disciples remember this because zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus had zeal for his father's house. He had a righteous anger. He said, you know, as he drove them out, that you made my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, I was pondering about this. And I think that sometimes the church, that we need that kind of zeal. That the church, and, and it's, it's zeal, it's not zeal without knowledge, it's not zeal without love, but to have a real heart, a real zeal for the things of God, rather than just kind of yawn and, oh well, no big deal. You know, so what if there's carnality or compromise with God's word? No big deal. That we as a church would have zeal for the things of God and the ways of God and the word of God. That you as a family, that you would have that, and you individually, 
that you would have zeal, that, that we would say in our lives, I want to drive out those things that are ripping me off. I don't want to have those things in my life. Just that zeal, I think that we need that in our lives, in our Christian lives. Otherwise, we have a tendency to, to become sleepy and, and lazy if we're not careful, but to be watching and have zeal. And it, it just kind of reminded me of, of zeal can be a good thing uh, when it's zeal for the Lord and it's zeal concerning the things of God and the Word of God. In verse 10, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. They also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Verse 11 here, they would, you know, talk about David. He was a byword at this time. And we've seen that David writing other psalms during this time that they would scheme against him, search for iniquities, and David this and David that. And you know the story when David left that there was this guy that was hurling curses at David. And one of David's guys says, David, can I go over there and lop his head off? And David said, no. Maybe it's coming from the Lord. And if the Lord sees favor, he'll have me return here. But he became a byword, and and they were talking about him and putting him down. And that's another difficult thing that you and I as a Christian can go through, that maybe with your family or at the workplace, that you become a byword because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. And know that the Lord, he knows and he sees and he desires to just bless you. And, and he says, blessed are those who go through that, who are persecuted for my name's sake. But, you know, Jesus became a byword. You might think, how did he become a byword? Remember the religious leaders in John chapter 10? Uh, as they were asking Jesus, you know, what authority do you do these things? And, and then as they were talking about being, you know, descendants of Abraham and boasting in that um, And they would shoot at Jesus and say, well, we weren't born out of fornication. In other words, those religious leaders knew about Mary, that she had Jesus when she wasn't, you know, gone through that final stage of marriage. They didn't know that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that was a dig. That was an insult. (laughs) We weren't born out of fornication. The implication was you were. So Jesus became a byword as well. And we see that as we continue here, I am the song of the drunkards. Those who sit at the gate speak against me, verse 12. Of course, Absalom would have his 50 runners, and they would be there at the gate, and, and uh, Absalom early in the morning and putting David down. And you read about that as it led up to that rebellion against David. In verse 13, But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. And let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. But hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. And turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. And hear me speedily. And then in verse 18, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemy. So David goes from pain, and in that pain he begins to pray. And we need to do the same thing. That's one thing that we've learned from David is in our pain to cry out to the Lord, to go from pain to prayer, 
Because the Lord does see us. And to call out and, and call upon his tender mercies uh, for us. And, and don't hide your face. I'm in trouble. We can tell the Lord that. And we also know from Psalm 46 that the psalmist says that he's our very help, our present help in time of trouble. That is, he's available for us to help right now. In verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. For they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, verse 21 is quoted in the Gospels as being fulfilled as Jesus was on the cross. And we know that what they would do is they would give gall, uh, was an anesthetic to give to crucified victims to deaden the pain. And Matthew chapter 27 tells us that Jesus refused that. Jesus would take the full wrath of God on that cross. When it came to the vinegar, the vinegar was used to moisten his lips. They were so dry. My throat is dry. His lips being cracked. And it would moisten his lips and moisten his tongue a little bit so he could cry out those wonderful three words, it is finished. It is finished. And he did the work and he paid the price for you and for me to be forgiven. He's provided that forgiveness through the cross. It is finished. And for salvation and have right relationship with the Father. He's done the work and now we rejoice in that. In verse 22, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents. For they have persecuted the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness, and let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. And so David's praying for God's, you know, judgment on them. This is also what is called an imprecatory prayer or psalm, where David does that. He's expressing his heart and, and the difficulty, and Lord, you deal with them. But I am poor and sorrowful, verse 29. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. One of the things that we see with David, when he just expresses that anger, then he turns it back to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I am needy. I need you, and I'm going to praise you, and I'm going to get my focus on you. And these also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. As David looks forward to the time when the Lord will come back and establish his kingdom. So Father, we thank you for these psalms that we looked over and the encouragement given to us that you are the one who is faithful and that you're our help 
And you're the one that brings comfort and strength in our time of need. And you are salvation. There is none other. And just as we come to the communion table tonight, Lord, it reminds us of our salvation. Our salvation that comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation that is available to everyone. And to anyone tonight that has not come to salvation through Jesus that Jesus did cry from that cross, it is finished. And he hung on that cross, the one who knew no sin, became sin, took your sins upon himself, that we might become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. You can't be righteous any other way. It's through the righteousness of Jesus, imputed to you as you come in faith and believing in him and recognizing your need for the Savior. And we're reminded of that when we come to the communion table tonight, but it's for the believer who is just remembering Jesus' death on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. If you've never done that, we invite you to come to salvation right now to give your heart to Jesus Christ. He did the work. He rose from the grave. Salvation is now possible as you put your faith and trust in him. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you I ask that you would forgive me a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. And you rose again after three days and you're alive. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing salvation to me and forgiving me. And I thank you for making me one that is righteous in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your incredible love. And for all of us now, as the communion elements are handed out, that you would just hang on to them. We'll partake of them together as we come to remember and celebrate what the Lord has done for us. In Jesus' name.